right. We started a new series uh, last week that will carry us through the end of this month as we prepare to nominate uh, new elders and deacons. And if you're new to Grace Fellowship, elders and deacons, uh, these are the two offices that lead our church. Uh, And so uh, servants and shepherds, uh, the deacon is a servant, leads in service, and the elder is a shepherd. He leads by shepherding uh, the church. And so we are getting ready for that by talking about leadership and what it looks like in the church and maybe how it differs from where we see it in other places. Now, you might think, okay, well, uh, this doesn't apply to me, right? Uh, you know, this, this series is for somebody else. I don't ever plan to be a leader or uh, this, this, one, this one doesn't mean anything for me, so I can just sit this one out, right? But I want you to think about a few things. First, if you're a member of Grace Fellowship... Uh, then you have a voice in nominating and electing who it is that leads you. And so this series should be, instructed for, should be instructed for every member of our church in who do I look for? What kind of man should I nominate to the office of elder or deacon? So I think you should pay attention for that reason. Second, we think you will lead somewhere. Right? You may lead in your home. You may lead on your team, you may lead in your school, you may lead in your workplace, you may lead in your community. And we would say that our world needs more Christ-shaped influence, not less. And therefore, this series can apply to you in that way. But there's a more specific group of people that I want to address, and that is to the man in the room who says, I'm never going to be that man. I'm never going to, to live up to the title of elder or deacon. You know, we've been fortunate here at Grace to have a history of some good leadership. And if you've been here for a while, you may have known some of those men, and you may think to yourself, I can't live up to that. I can never be that. But I want you to imagine how poor your life would be if Neil Vinson had said that. If he had chosen uh, comfort instead of the risk of investing his life in yours. And I want you to, to know that um, those great men... Uh, Memory, memory often plays tricks on us. We often tend to remember things better than they were. Those men were good men, but they're also flawed men. They sinned. They argued with their wives. They went to counseling. In fact, they regularly seek counsel from those who are older and wiser than themselves because they know that they don't have it all together. They had feet of clay like any man. But they're not here anymore, and their boots are empty, and they need to be filled, even if the shoes that fill them don't quite fit yet. I want you to know that those men did not start out the way that you remember them. They started out by answering a call, and God equipped them as they served in that call. And so as we go through this series, I want to speak particularly to the brothers who are eligible to be elders and deacons. Think about your own calling 
as we go through this series. Consider your own call and don't let fear or pride or unbelief sideline you. All right? So last week we talked about our identity. We talked about how our identity is not found in our pedigree, right? It's not found in our family history. Our identity is not found in our performance. Our identity is found in Christ, right? We live by grace and not by performance. And today what I want us to see is how that same grace gives us, that same grace that gives us a new identity also gives us a new path to walk, a new way to live and a new way to to lead. So let's turn to Mark chapter 10. If you're using the uh, Bible there in the chair, it's page 846. Mark chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 32 to give you some context, but we'll spend most of our time in verses 35 through 45. Let's give our attention to God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I love the disciples. They give me so much hope. You know that saying, misery loves company. Uh, Failure loves company too. Uh, I'm so grateful that these men who walked with Jesus, uh, shared the road with Jesus, listened to Jesus teach, ate with Jesus, still were totally clueless when Jesus spoke. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's not really a good way to start, but that's how they start. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, And one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And now we pray that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts. Holy Spirit, do not leave us the same as when we began this service of worship, but would you change us from the inside out? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was very clear about what he came to do. Three times in Mark's gospel, Mark 8, Mark 9, and now in Mark 10. So three times in three chapters, Jesus tells the disciples exactly what's going to happen. And that's instructive for us, one, because we need to hear that Jesus' death was not an accident. Jesus' death was the mission all along. It was the reason for which he came. Uh, But for the three times he tells them, all three times they don't get it. All three times they respond either with silent confusion or just outright foolishness like we see here. Why is that? Well, I think it's because suffering and Savior don't go together. Cross and crown are the opposites of each other. Right? One is shameful. The other is glorious. One is to be avoided at all cost. One is to be sought at all cost. And so when Jesus puts those together, it's legitimately confusing. Right? And, and what do you do when things don't make sense, when you don't understand something? You revert back to the way you think things should be. Um, I'm coaching youth soccer, and I forget what season number this is. I didn't play soccer. I wasn't much of an athlete. I guess I'm not much of an athlete now, but I certainly wasn't when I was a kid. Uh, And so I've learned soccer as I have coached my sons through soccer. And one of the very first things that we have to teach kids when they play soccer is how to kick the ball. Now, that seems like it'd be pretty elementary, right? Like, everybody knows how to kick. You know, like you you learn to walk, then you learn to run, then you learn to kick, right? You just kick. That's all you do. But that's not true in soccer. In soccer, you don't kick with the toe. You kick with the inside of your foot. The inside of your foot's bigger. Uh, You can control the ball better. And once you learn how to do that, that, it's kind of an awkward maneuver, right? We're used to kicking forward awkward to learn to turn your foot to the side, but once you do it and you master it, then you figure it out. And so we work on that, right? We practice it and we practice it and we practice it, but then inevitably we get to the game. And some of you also coach soccer, so you know exactly what happens when we get to the game. This dome of confusion settles over the field where no coach's voice can be heard inside on, on the actual field, Right? Right, you get nervous, it's game time, they're shouting from both sidelines, and you totally forget. Right? And you revert back to the way you used to kick. Right? And so once again we have to relearn and relearn and relearn. So even though uh, Jesus is coaching them in the way that they're supposed to go, right, they think they already know the story. They're like those little kids on the soccer field. They, they know how this is supposed to work, right? Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. We're supposed to go this way to glory. 
And Jesus has to say repeatedly, no, the way to glory is this way. The way to glory goes down, not up. And so what I want us to see today is not only does, not only does Jesus himself, right, not only does Jesus save us and give us a new identity, but that same gospel, that same good news actually changes the way that we live. And it changes the way that we lead. It changes the way we think about our lives, the way we think about leadership, right? This new identity that we talked about last week comes with a new way to live. Some of you uh, have been adopted. Some of you are adoptive parents. Some of you are foster care parents. And so this reality will make sense to you. Uh, But when a little girl is adopted, she receives a new identity, right? She receives a new name and a new family and all of the benefits that come with that new identity. But you know what she also receives? A new way to live, a new routine, a new pattern, new rules, right? There's now, a, there's now a different pattern to life than the one that she lived before. And that's true with the gospel as well. That's true with us. The gospel does the same thing for you and for me. So let's, let's walk through this passage and see if I can show you what I mean. First, let's talk about how we commonly think about life and leadership. Right? So Jesus and his followers, uh, they are on their final trip. Uh, this is... This is the last leg of the journey. They don't know that as well as he knows that, but they're on their way up to Jerusalem, and he tells them again for the third time uh, what's going to happen. He gets very specific, uh, particularly about the details of his mistreatment. He's going to be flogged and spit on and beat, right? Uh, And it's at this point that James and John sidle up to Jesus and ask for a favor. And what they ask for is, They say, we want to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. And this means they wanted positions of power, right? Because they say, when you come into your glory. So Jesus, when you get what's coming to you, we would like some special special authority. We would like to sit at your right hand and your left. We want to be the the vice president and the chief of staff. Maybe the way that we would think about this, right? And... We see the same thing, right? So James and John are are just like us. They're demonstrating the way that we commonly think about power and influence and glory, right? Get connected to power, and you can have power. Get connected to authority and influence, and then you will have authority and influence. Know the right people, and you can become one of the right people, right? It's, It's pretty common uh, in our world. This is the way that power and influence work. And then in verse 41, we see that the ten, the other ten, are indignant, right? Uh, verse 41, when the ten heard it, so the other ten disciples, uh, they hear about James and John's request, and they get angry. Now, you have to ask, are they angry because James and John were so insensitive? And such morons. How, how, how could they have said such an insensitive thing to Jesus after Jesus said all that he said? No, y'all, they're indignant because they got beat to the punch. Right? They, they, want, they, they want what James and John want. They're indignant because they're like, whoa, 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 they don't get special treatment. Why should they get special treatment? We're, we're in this as well. Now, how do we know that's their motive? 
How do we know that's what's going on in their hearts? The text doesn't explicitly say it, but look at what Jesus says. Jesus, Jesus shows us that's what's in their hearts because he uses this moment to talk about how we think about leadership, how we think about power, how we think about influence, right? And what does he say? Um, he says, those who are, look at verse 42, those who are considered rulers use their authority to lord it over their subjects, right? So authority outside of Jesus is all about domineering. It's all about control. It's all about taking advantage of. They lord it over them. They exercise authority. It's all about being over someone else, fighting for rank and position, exploiting others to get yourself ahead. But Jesus says, not so among you. So Jesus says, I have a very different narrative. Right? You want to kick it with your toe, but I'm going to show you another way to kick that's better. Right? And so what Jesus then does is he shows us a new way to live and a new way to lead. First, he changes the way that we live. How does he do that? Well, look back up at the request that James and John make. When Jesus, in verse 38, when Jesus answers them, he, sounds something, he says something that sounds very strange to us. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What in the world is he talking about? So cup and baptism are two Old Testament images that Jesus is using. In the Old Testament, they, they paralleled each other and basically it meant to take God's judgment. Right? So if you were going to drink the cup of God's wrath, you were taking God's wrath on yourself. To be baptized was to be put underneath God's wrath. Okay, So Jesus, in essence, is saying, I am taking on God's wrath. Um, and we can see that James and John still don't catch on because they say, yeah, we're able to do that. And Jesus says something even more puzzling. He says, actually, you will drink my cup and you will receive my baptism. Now, we should stop there and ask the question. Now, wait, wait, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus' sacrifice unique? Isn't he, like, how can Jesus say he's going to do this and they're going to do that? All right? So, first of all... Um, is Jesus saying that James and John will also die for human sin? That's what Jesus is saying he's coming to do, right? He's coming to take the place of sinners. Now is he saying that James and John are going to do that? No, right? Uh, if I'm in debt, I can't pay your way out of debt, right? If we're both in debt, we really can't help each other. Same way, if, if we're both sinful, we can't pay for each other's sin, Right? I, can't even, I can't even cover my own, let alone yours. And so uh, Jesus' work is unique because he is unique. There's no one like him. No one else can do what he does. And not only that, but Jesus' work is sufficient. It's enough. We talked more about this last week, but he's the perfect sacrifice. So there's nothing left for you and I to make up. There's no, there's no gap in coverage. Right? Some of you... 
uh, are getting to enjoy Medicaid or Medicare, right? And the, you've got to figure out where the gap in your coverage is. In Jesus's coverage, there is no gap, right? It's all, it's all covered in Christ. So why does he say you will drink the cup? You will receive my baptism. Because Jesus is showing them a new way to live, a new way to do life. He's saying, if you follow me, my path becomes your path. Your life will look like my life. You will begin to embody the gospel. Not to save anybody, because only Jesus can do that, but because this is how we become like Jesus. This is the path for everyone who would follow Jesus. They must go down into death and up into life. And just to show you that this is all over the New Testament, listen to how Jesus puts it in Mark 8, 34 and 35. Probably a verse you may be familiar with. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. The Christian's life looks like Jesus' life. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, a passage we looked at last week. Paul says, that I may know him. How does he know him? And the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, the way that I know Jesus is by joining him in his death, right? I share in his sufferings. I die myself, and I come up into newness of life. Here's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. He said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See that same theme. Down into death, sharing Christ's sufferings, and then up into life, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is the pattern of the Christian life. So if I'm rescued by Jesus and identified with Jesus, then Jesus shows me a new way to live. Now, as my friend Jason Sterling says, why does that matter on a Tuesday afternoon? What in the world? Put, put some feet on that for me. Well, one, if I'm expecting suffering, if I know that it's coming, then that should ease bitterness. Expecting suffering eases bitterness. Why? Because suffering is not the unexpected interruption to my normal course of life. It is the normal course of life because it was Jesus's course of life, right, which is why Peter can say, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. It's coming. Right? So times of, times of ease are times to prepare ourselves for that moment when that, that downswing, that down into death will come. And we don't always necessarily mean literal death, Right? When we die to our sin, we have to go down into death, right? Anytime suffering comes in, right, it limits us, it squeezes us, it constricts us, right? We lose something, all right? So 
expecting suffering can ease bitterness, but also, here's the upswing, expecting resurrection keeps me from despair. Right? When I know that this is the pattern to life going down into death and, and up into resurrection, that, that suffering comes before glory, I'm always on the hunt. Even in suffering, I'm always looking at and saying, okay, how is God going to use this? Where is he going to turn this up into life? How is, how is this going to turn out? Right? It enables us to have a different perspective, a different view, one that doesn't have to give in to bitterness and anger, nor that lapses into despair. Right? We can be hurting and hopeful at the same time when we understand this pattern. Now, how does this change the way that we lead? Jesus changes the way that we live. How does he change the way that we lead? Well, leadership in the kingdom follows that same shape. It's all about going down. It's all about getting low, not going high, right? Look at verse 43. They, he had just pointed out, right, that those who are rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, seek to dominate and control. And he says, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That word for servant is where we get the word deacon from. To be a deacon is to serve someone. Verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Who is the lowest person uh, in the home, right? Who, who is the lowest person on the totem pole in the first century house? It would have been the bondservant. It would have been the slave, right? They're, they're not first. They're last, right? If you ever watch the show uh, Downton Abbey, you get a great depiction of this, right? The downstairs people. And even, and even in the servants, even in the downstairs, you had grades of servants, right? There were some who were lower than the others. You could be the chief servant or the lowest servant. Right? Jesus is saying, you want to be first? You need to learn to go last. That's what leadership looks like in the kingdom. The path to authority and influence in the church is not the high road of recognition and fame. It's the low road of slave and servant. So what? What does that mean for us? Well, first... When you look for leaders, look for those who are already serving. Look for those who come early and stay late. Uh, I love the movie We Were Soldiers. It's about Hal Moore, who was a lieutenant general. Uh, he wrote the book We Were Soldiers Once and, and Young. We Were Soldiers is the movie adaptation of that book. Uh, and he led a force, an air cavalry force, uh, into the Iadrang Valley in Vietnam. Uh, and he says a line in the movie that I absolutely love. He tells his men while they're training, he says, I will be the first man on the field, and I will be the last man off the field. Now, he's the commanding officer, right? Uh, common wisdom would say, uh, no, he, he needs to put the expendable guys up front. Right? We don't know what we're going into, so I'm going to stay back here where it's safe, and you guys, you guys go in. But General Moore didn't do that. He said, I'm the first one on the field, and then once everybody else is safely back on the helicopters, I'm the last man off. That's what it looks like to lead as a servant. Leadership will cost you something. Very few of us fill our lives with bad things. 
Some of us do, but very few of us, I would say, fill our lives with bad things. Most of us fill our lives with way too many good things. And so to be a leader means at some point you have to count the cost. And there will be some good things that you have to say no to. Some good things that you even have to die to. Serving others will constrict you and, and limit, limit you. So you, you have to choose. And so the Jesus-shaped leader doesn't ask, what can I gain? But rather, what can I give away? That's what leadership looks like. But not only will leadership cost you, it also comes with a very great reward. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See that pattern? Death and life? Yes, it will cost you. You will have to give something up. You may have to give many things up. You will lose something. But what you will gain on the other side will be incomparable in its worth. Jim Elliott, famous missionary who lost his life to the same tribe that he was trying to reach, said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he could never lose. Friends, that's the story of the gospel. That's the story. That's, that's how Jesus teaches us to live. It's how Jesus teaches us to lead. We can lose a lot, but we gain so much more in the upswing. What empowers this? How do we learn to live and lead this way? Well, look at, look at verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, deacon, but to serve. Jesus is the first deacon. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom. He pays the debt. He puts himself out so that he can liberate his people. He lays out great expense, great cost to himself so that he can free us. And friend, when you finally believe that, it changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would take it and apply it to our hearts. Help us to learn to live and to love and to lead like our Savior Jesus. 